Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the Definitive Rap Podcast. We thank VinNews.com for hosting our weekly shows. Today's show is going to be a little different than our previous shows. Instead of politics, we have a very special guest, Dr. Mark Strauss, whom Bela will introduce shortly to talk about his new book, One-Legged Mongoose, Secrets, Legacies, and Coming of Age in 1950s New York, and Just in Time for Hanukkah. When I first started reading the book, for those of you who watch TV, I thought it was something like the Goldbergs meet the Wonder Years, as the book starts off with Mark talking about his chain-smoking mother who drives down the Belt Parkway like a speed demon, then without slowing down up the ramp off the Van Wyck Expressway, with total disregard that Mark is, is going to vomit all over himself if she doesn't pull over quickly. While the book has its funny moments, there are many important lessons that we hope to discuss today with Dr. Strauss. From getting into fistfights in public school in West Hempstead, Long Island, and always winning, not many Jews can say that, to transferring to a yeshiva day school in Queens, traveling alone on the train with his younger brother for four hours every day. Mark's story is very unique in that he endured physical abuse at home and never telling anyone to helping his immigrant father on Sundays at his textile businesses. He survived polio and recovered after being hit by a car all before the age of 12 to always looking out for his younger brother and other defenseless victims of childhood bullying. Today, Mark Strauss is a very prominent oncologist, published poet writer and art gallery owner. Bela? Thank you, Alan. There are people who tend to admire the person who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. But in most cases, one of the most admirable characteristics about a person is the one who made it not because of someone or something, but in spite of. <clears throat> Our guest today is that person. He was not born with that silver spoon in his mouth. He went through trials and tribulations but he was a very spirited young child and a force to be reckoned with, all while carrying a dark secret. I won't tell the audience too much more because I, I don't want to give away the interview and the story. This very special individual overcame many challenges, including physical and rose to become prominent in many fields. The lesson to be learned here is that no matter what path lies before you in your journey of this world, if you are determined to get there, you will get there. Bumpy roads, traffic, even an accident to hold you back. If you want to get there, you will get there. And when you want to get to that place, you will. Readers of this book will surely think about their own journeys. Our guest today was raised in the 1950s to Jewish immigrant parents who were far from treating him with a silver spoon. And instead, he created his own silver spoon all by himself. It gives me tremendous honor to be sitting here 
and interviewing Mark Strauss. Dr. Strauss is a writer and medical oncologist who has authored or co-authored some 100 scientific papers and editor of three textbooks on lung cancer. Dr. Strauss is the author of four poetry collections. His poems and stories have appeared in top literary journals, including Plowshares and Kenyon Review. An art collector, he runs the Mark Strauss Gallery in New York City. His new book, a memoir, is called One-Legged Mongoose, Secrets, Legacies, and Coming of Age in the 1950s, New York. It is available for purchase on Amazon and other book sites. Dr. Strauss, welcome to The Definitive Wrap. Thank you so much. My first question uh, for our audience's purpose, what is a mongoose and why did you give this title to your book? Uh, it's the it's the title of a chapter that comes later in the book, and it comes about because I'm now in my second year in the yeshiva. I got through the first year. Uh, we're traveling with my kid brother four hours a day, and we're nearing winter. And my mother tells me she signed me up for a Boy Scout troop in Hempstead, and. Um, I thought it was ridiculous. I was commuting 24 hours a week. But I go and I'm told we have to go on a camping weekend in order to be a tenderfoot. So off I go on a freezing weekend out in Long Island. And after we pitch the tent and the campfire, the troop leader tells all the kids, well, we're lucky we were able to come here because the park's been closed for many years because a one-legged mongoose has roamed the park and kills people. And it's half mongoose, half man with one leg. And then he said, but we're Troop 300. Let's see if we could find it. And half the kids wanted to puke on the spot. So I go off with one of the leaders, and there's four of us, and he points down one of these roads. And he said, who wants to volunteer to go down to the end of the road and look for the mongoose? So I put my hand up. Mark Strauss, I have so many questions. In fact, I was going to ask you about that. But let me go. And again, nothing's going to be in order today because there are just so many parts that intrigued me. You were a kid. I think you were at 10 years old when you first started writing up until your bar mitzvah. Um, 12, right. Yeah, well, yeah, I think be right that you're about to take your bar mitzvah lessons. Right. Um, so, you know, I know how kids are today, as I'm sure you do. And I know that if my parents told me you're going to be going to a yeshiva and going four hours alone on the train, um, <laughs> come hell or high water, I would say, no, I'm not. And yet in your book, I don't think I ever once read you complain about anything that your parents made you do. Um, so if you could talk about like, who are you and what kind of kid are you that you never said, mom and dad, you can't do this to me. I'm a 10 year old kid. Well, I hated the school I was in was partly the reason Uh, we went to a public school. Then it was dreadful. And I was a kid who was really an advanced reader. I mean, I spent kindergarten literally under the piano every day. Parents didn't know what was going on then. So I was punished every day. A couple other years weren't much better. I was learning nothing. Uh, 
And uh, we weren't religious, but it was my dad who announced we're moving to my kid brother and I are going to go to Yeshiva in Queens. So it's very religious. We weren't religious. And a part of me thought anything is better than where I was. Although before I started high school, he told me now I'm going to Yeshiva High School in Long Island. And I said I'd never show up. And he knew I wouldn't, although I wound up going to Yeshiva in Flatbush, Brooklyn. <laughs> Didn't, you know, so I kind of did anyway. Yeah. Dr. Strauss, your book touched me to the core. I will get into it, uh, many reasons why. Um, but what I would like to know is, um, as much as this is a book that cannot be put down to even take a break, why did you choose to write your memoir from the perspective of a 10-year-old child? There were um, a lot of good people who suggested I write it in the adult voice because that's the norm. There are really virtually no books like this. But I couldn't do it. I knew too much. I had an adult perspective, and my story would have been altered by what I know. But when I began to think about an episode that occurred back when I was 10, I was back in that space. I could remember and see everything. And I got out of the way of the kid I was. I just let him tell the story. And I thought, that's authentic because that's what happened. You know, it's not altered by what I know today. You know, one of the many things I admire about you, and there are many, um, you were very protective over your little brother. Um, I have a younger brother. I was semi-protective over him, but not to the degree that you were. Um, And then I know you dedicated your book to him as well. But and then you also in your book, you wrote about a kid named Freddie, who kids taunted and teased in camp. But one of the things that really struck me was when you stood up for your grandmother because of the way your mother was speaking to him. And that I've never seen before. And it seems like at a very young age, you were mature um, beyond your years. Uh, you know, again, defending a little brother, that's normal on the streets. But you, you stood up for your grandmother uh, and you got in the middle of two adults. Um, where does that come from? Is it just a matter of you're just incredibly respectful? You're intuitive. Where, where does that come from? Um, my mother would get violent. And um, it would come on sometimes very unexpectedly. Uh, My grandma Katie was funny, interesting. She was, um, you know, she was a woman who had, um, you know, no anger that I knew. Although I asked one of her sons, did you ever get hit? And he said, only with pots and pans. (laughs) I thought, well, he didn't seem to think that was so bad. But my mother uh, got fiercely angry at her mother one time, and I knew what my mother was capable of, and I just got right in the middle. wouldn't wouldn't allow her to go further. Um, for whatever reason, I I took what she gave, you know, for too long, and I wouldn't allow her to hit my brother wouldn't allow her to hit my grandmother. You know, I guess I thought I could take it. And um, 
unfortunately, it went on far too long. Uh, Dr. Strauss, um, in your book, one can easily see your spirit and inner pain and how a person can dull their own pain and not feel it. As you wrote, my hands are blurs, left, right, left. Even if I get hit, it will do no good. I won't feel it. You have no chance with someone like me. No chance. Tell me what was going on in your mind at that time. The way I got through was, um, you know, I never cry. These things started from before the age of two. I would stand there. I wouldn't say a word. And very quickly, I felt nothing. I absolutely had no pain. So when I got into fist fights, which was very frequent, um, I don't remember ever getting hit. That's um, very well, again, sad. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I also believe I needed to work out. I needed to get strong. I needed to be good at fighting. You know, I didn't take it as a given. Uh, I was a relentless street fighter. And if somebody picked on my brother... I would eventually find them. Yeah, it's a, there, there are great stories in the book. And, and I just, I, I marvel that, you know, your memory, that you remember how you stood, how they stood. Um, you're thinking about, you know, if they motion with their left hand, what you're going to do. Um, so you have an incredible memory. Let me go on to a, a, something a little bit more positive, <laughs> just for a few moments. Um, there are many stories about kids who go to yeshiva day school. And sometimes they'll say, because of this rabbi, I became more religious. Because of this one, I became less religious. And you spoke very glowingly about your relationship with Rabbi Charney. And then also one story that I loved was when you were learning Gemara or Talmud. And you asked Rabbi, I think, was, was it Rabbi Rosenstein or Rabbi Rosenberg? Uh, Ro- Rosenstein. Yeah, and you asked him a question about, you know, about taking a vow. And he was stumped. And then you went to Rabbi Charney. And I'm just wondering, uh, first of all, what was that moment like for you that you finally won the approval of a rabbi who you didn't like to only be further supported by a rabbi, a principal who you really admired? Uh, and was that question ever answered? Oh, no one's asked me that before. Um, <laughs> rabbi Charney must have had insight. He must have had some idea as to who I was. He didn't know about the home situation. He took me, and I think, and I didn't know anything. I mean, I had to catch up a bit. And then quickly, we were in Talmud, taught a half a day in Aramaic. And I really had difficulty with the teacher. Uh, And finally, and I cut most of the classes. I finally came back one day, and I thought of a question. I was just trying to stump him. I was just trying to piss him off. <laughs> and I asked him this really complicated question. And I thought when he left the class, he was going to go to the principal, have me thrown out. But Rabbi Charney came in and they loved a question they couldn't answer. And then he took it to the rabbinic assembly. They never answered the question. I mean, they were stumped. And I learned so much because they loved 
that they couldn't answer it, which baffled me. I was just trying to piss them off. Well, <laughs> and look what came of it. Bela? Yeah. Um, Dr. Strauss, I, I don't mean to get morbid. <laughs> um, this is going to be personal for me, and I'm sure for you too. Uh, and if you don't want to answer, that's okay. Dr. Strauss, it is not just your book that touched me profoundly, which I, as I, as I must say again, I could not put it down. Um, but your profession as well touched me profoundly too. You are an oncologist specializing in lung cancer. My husband, a blessed memory, who never smoked a cigarette in his life, died of lung cancer. My question to you is, did you choose your profession as an oncologist in this field because of watching your mother smoke? Uh, Consciously, no. I think I knew, even as a little kid, smoking kills with lung cancer. I mean, you know, the Surgeon General didn't say so until 1964, but it was a ruse. Of course it did. Um, I didn't even consciously know I was going to be a doctor or go into medicine. But then I think, my God, in high school, I was reading medical textbooks, almost like comic books. And um, when I was lucky enough to get offered a research fellowship in the National Cancer Institute, my life really changed because cancer medicine was really primitive then. I was going because it was a great two-year fellowship, but I wasn't thinking, well, I'm going to go into this. But once I was there and thought I might be able to make a difference if I really work hard, I it was my life's work. And, you know, lung cancer... Um, the outcome was terrible back then. And I wish I could tell you it's changed enough since then, but it hasn't. Dr. Strauss, from the time you were five, you went to work with your father. Um, again, you got the fist fights, you the four hours of traveling to school. Um, you work with your dad, as I mentioned earlier. You went to camp, you cut your eye, you traveled two hours back to a hospital, you got hit by a car. And you know how kids are today versus how you were growing up. And I was like the next generation because I was uh, uh, I was born in 62. And I know that every generation, kids become more and more sense of entitlement. Do you ever, did you ever have that conversation with your kids? When I was a kid, I had to do X, Y, and Z, and you guys have it too good. Or were your kids more grounded? Or did you just say, you know what, that's how life was back then, and this is how life is today, and no use in trying to uh, tell them how it was in the old days. Well, I think I didn't. Um, and now I, I'm over my son's house today and I'm with a couple of his kids. I'm not sure. I mean, they're great. I'm not so sure it's a sense of entitlement, but I think the notion that you can go out even as a kid and earn your own money and you can work hard and do meaningful things there's there there really is very little of that you know in some ways i wish there was more i wish the kind of things they did in the summer you know once my oldest granddaughter was interested in my buying her this piece of art i wish the hell i was it's worth a fortune today <laughs> but i said you know an amazing piece 
So I, she was 11, and I said, okay, I'll buy it if you, if you contribute. She says, what do you mean? I'm 11. I said, shovel snow, make a couple bucks. Um, it, it really is something we often don't see today. When I uh, turned five, I asked my dad for a birthday present. And, you know, he was very quiet at home. And he said, what? And I said, I want to work in the store every Sunday. And he didn't answer. And two weeks later, Sunday morning, he said, come on, we're going. And that was it. And I worked there a great deal until I finished medical school. I, I loved I loved it. I loved all of it. This was his world, and he was great at it. And um, I only realized years later how much it helped me as a cancer specialist, you know, learning how to communicate really well with patients and families. Because in that immigrant store, I was selling full-time by the age of nine. Right. Dr. Strauss, if your book has, you know, as I keep repeating, uh, that touched me. And um, I was crying when I read this passage, amongst other passages, but this passage in particular, as she raises the strap even higher, I face her stiffly. I have never turned away. I can't recall crying, and I won't cry today. Child abuse is quite prevalent in all circles and societies. What would you tell children enduring abuse today? Um, I wish children could um, tell other people, but you know, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible. Um, I didn't tell anyone. Uh, only Why is my, that? Because you don't. I mean, it's, it's, I once, when I was five and I really endured a horrible beating, I told my mother I was going to tell my father. I was, it was odd. She pleaded with me not to. And I told her finally, well, I won't tell him, but I'm never going to forget. When we see these Penn State athletes, when we see these women gymnasts you know, and these horrible stories, I mean, Penn State kids were college students and probably most of them never told anybody because there's a kind of shame in being a victim. And in our family, I also thought I could endure it. You know, my siblings couldn't endure it. And I would find a way to get past it. I could, I could do this. I'll get past it. And I always had in my mind, it's going to end. You know, I wanted to make it end. And I didn't know how for the longest time. But the system has to find a better way uh, to intervene much earlier. I mean, even though there's child services today, and if, you know, my mother did this and it was known, well, we'd probably be pulled out of the house. And we didn't have such a thing then, but I didn't want that. I didn't want my siblings, you know, not to have the family. You know, there were times, though, in the book where you had positive experiences with your mother. Um, when you, again, when you cut your eye and you came home by yourself, when you got hit by the car and she came to visit you, when you played Scrabble together. And I'm wondering, during those times, did you, did you say to yourself, you know, my mom is a pretty cool lady. She does love me after all. Um, were you able to 
maybe say, you know what, maybe that was in the past, but I see now I can bond with her. Did that ever play into your mind when the good times were happening? I think I always realized she was complicated and there always was good and bad. I never, I never thought one offset the other. I just couldn't understand why I hadn't stopped it when I could have, why I didn't run out the door when I could have, until I finally stopped it. But she was a brilliant woman. I mean, back when we lived in West Hampstead and she was president of Hadassah, I mean, she was a force. If she decided to raise money, she was going to do it. Um, this was a person who was profoundly affected by leaving high school just before she graduated because in the Depression, her family had no money, and she went out to work at age 15. She could have likely been one of the great pianists in the world, and she gave it up. I know when she began to see the accomplishments of her granddaughters, and now she could see her great-granddaughters, what they've done and what they're capable of, she was capable of all of it. And I understood as a little kid how smart she was. And I understood that if I needed protection against other things, um, you didn't mess with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was once, <laughs> I was five once, and my mother warned the, uh, the Hebrew school teacher locally, Mark's starting that next year. And she said, yes, to wait three more years. She says, no, he's starting next year. And she said to my mother, well, you know, he's not a bright kid. And my mother said, then you're a really stupid woman. (laughs) But she was complicated, like most people. Dr. Strauss, other than your great heights and your professional career, which you have taken, um, tell us who is Dr. Strauss today in his personal life? Um, I've always I've always been fortunate enough to do the thing I felt I wanted to do. So it was midlife. I had this urgent need to write poetry. I can't tell you much more about it because I wasn't sufficiently well-read, but, um, you know, I've published a great deal and um, been a poet at many places. But I decided 10 years ago to open a contemporary art gallery, and I opened it right across the street from my dad's store. And I'm on Grand Street, and I could look at his building every day, and it was like a homecoming. But I started collecting art when I was in high school and college, and I was really focused. And I, you know, I really enjoy running the gallery, and I go all over the world for, for my gallery. So, and more what than what type any, of art? Very contemporary. You know, I was a youngster who bought things nobody wanted. Uh, bought things by working a weekend job. And um, I guess I was lucky because many of those things extremely well known now. And as a gallerist, I've mostly found artists from around the world 
and try to start building their careers if I believe in their work. And, um, and then I love writing. And I have two novels nearing conclusion. I just have to get it better before I let it go. And uh, leave me alone to work on my book. I'm a happy guy. Uh, Dr. Strauss, throughout your book, you pepper different chapters about the Holocaust and also about, you know, your father um, raising money for different causes. Um, Today, are you active at all with different Jewish groups as far as Holocaust education or Holocaust Center um, or anything like that? Um, My wife and I uh, funded the beginning of a Jewish studies program in the college I attended. It had nothing. I mean, I really loved going to that school. It did really well by me, Franklin Marshall College, small school in Pennsylvania. Uh, But it had no Jewish studies, and it was an uphill battle. And now they do, and they have a Hillel Center. And, you know, we've continued to do more. We funded... um, we funded Jewish studies in a graduate school as well. Um, my dad was an impoverished immigrant from an area that's back in the Ukraine. And my wife and I visited there almost 18 years ago. And I can't even imagine what he endured as a kid. There's not a Jew in that region since mid-1943 but they remain anti-Semitic. So we've been involved in various other Jewish causes. Um, The Holocaust, as I say in the book, I I couldn't understand. I was trying to read everything I could find in the library. I wanted to understand it. No one talked about it. Uh, Not the rabbi in the synagogue, not the school. There were no Holocaust courses. And I couldn't understand that. And, um, you know, that's changed dramatically in the United States, but we're seeing other challenges with anti-Semitism today. And um, these challenges concern me greatly. Dr. Strauss, we just have a few few more minutes. Um, Can you tell us about your bout with polio? Um, When I was a kid, that was the big scare. Uh, if you look at the incidents compared to COVID today, it was only a small fraction. But families went to the Catskills to get away in the summer. And I was 11 years old, and it was a hot summer day, and I was going to walk down the stairs, and I couldn't. My legs collapsed. And I was diagnosed with probable polio. I mean, I had polio. There was no exact test. And I never completely uh, lost the feeling in my leg. So I was put on total bed rest for two months. And eventually, slowly, I got better. Um, there was no vaccine then. There almost right. was a vaccine. It was recalled. People died from the vaccine. And then it came out again about a year and a half later. But polio was the big scare. I mean, I saw a girl pulled out of a house in West Hempstead and she died. Uh, 
it, it was an amazing disease. And the doctor, the neurologist whom we went to, I think he impacted me as a physician because he answered my questions. I was 11 years old, but he answered my questions. He took me seriously. So you um, took charge of your condition. He did, and he was really good. I mean, you did. You took charge of your condition, too, with regards to asking the questions that you needed answers to. I had a lot of questions, and I didn't want to hear it secondhand. You know, I thought, you know, and then he told me he's going to give me this injection of gamma globulin. Well, I couldn't totally block out that pain. It hurt like hell. But, you know, that was treatment really didn't exist. It was primitive. And what, what he told me, which is true today of COVID, is the majority of people are infected, don't even know it. You only find out from the antibodies. And I thought, that's really interesting. It's interesting that so many people have subclinical disease. But it was tough. But I was in bed. And as long as I wasn't getting worse, I thought, I can make this. I, I'm, I'm going to make this. I'm going to beat this. Dr. Strauss, we have literally about a minute and a half left. So here's what I'm going to ask you. Your book stops. or You end it with you're, getting, you're going to be taking bar mitzvah lessons. So do you have a follow-up to your book now? Or can you tell us a little bit more about what happened to you uh, after the age of 13? How was your bar mitzvah? Did, did all your girlfriends come? And I didn't talk about that during the, <laughs> during the interview. Uh, what happens after 13? I was lucky. I had this incredible guy who was at the synagogue in Hempstead who just his life's work. He was an expert in Torah reading and he taught me. I was kind of his protege. I went on to uh, do Torah reading and the Catskills, teach my kids. I'm on the last grandkid. This one is going to be a tough one. Um, <laughs> And then my dad announced for high school, I'm going to Yeshiva High School. So I negotiated and said, if Flatbush takes me, I'm going to go. Because I thought they wouldn't. Well, there you go. They took me. But I walked into first day, ninth grade in Yeshiva Flatbush. And I saw this girl on the other side of the room. And I made sure to sit down next to her. She's in the next room now. Ah. Married the girl I sat next to, whose grandfather was a famous rabbi and founder of Yeshiva University. And I still wasn't religious, but I married this very religious, fabulous girl. Wonderful. God bless you. Be long yeah. wrap it up. Dr. Strauss, thank you for joining us today on the Definitive Wrap. Thank you to vinews.com for hosting our show. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. I am reminding everyone to buy the book, One-Legged Mongoose, Secrets, Legacies, and Coming of Age in the 1950s New York, available for purchase on Amazon and other book sites. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.